Welcome to the Ark Stories Podcast. Ark Stories are true, personal, and told in person at Ark Stories events by the people who lived them. Our podcast brings recordings of those stories straight to you for your listening enjoyment. I'm your host, story coach, Chris Kinsley. We've all had experiences in life that have left lasting impressions upon us. They've stuck with us in such a way that they continue to affect us today. And for many of us, these impressions are often left over from experiences we had when we were children. Like, I can't stand eating corn on the cob to this day because of this traumatic experience I had losing a tooth while doing just that when I was a kid. I'd tell you more, but it's frankly too painful to think about. Anyway, the lasting impression in this first story is one left by one of our teller's earliest celebrity crushes. It was recorded at an event we hosted last month where our theme was Crazy Little Thing, stories about the good, the bad, and the very ugly of being in love. Here's storyteller Eric Chapman. Uh, so my first, or one of my first jobs out of college was uh, my professor had hooked me up with a real film shoot. I was going to run sound for a film. And I was super excited about it because it was going to be the first like big thing I've done, like big crews and real actors and stuff like that. But the main reason I was excited was uh, the girl who was playing the lead actress was a girl named Danica McKellar. Danica McKellar played Winnie Cooper on The Wonder Years, which was my favorite show growing up. For those of you who don't know about The Wonder Years, it is the coming-of-age story of Kevin Arnold. It took place in the, uh, took place in the 60s, and I identified with him because he's over-emotional and awkward. And, but his love interest in the show was Winnie Cooper, who was the all-American girl. She's beautiful and smart, and you know she would date someone like Kevin Arnold, which I felt like that means that I have a chance with someone like Winnie Cooper. But, like, it was a big deal growing up. Like, she became this idea for, for guys my age of, like, like, she is the reason why we use the, na- the term girl next door. She is, like, what you would, you know, this other guy would come in and say, oh, I met this girl. Like, oh, is she cool? Eh, she's no Winnie Cooper. But, like, so she's, she was a big deal for my age group. I'm talking like I'm really old. But. Um, so I was really, so I was obviously very excited to get started in working with Danica McKellar on this film. And I use the term working lightly because in production, you don't really work with the actors. Uh, you, you kind of sit in the background and plus I, I don't know what I would have said to her anyway, other than like, hi, I'm Eric. I've been in love with you since I was eight years old. Um, but anyway, we start the film and it's, it's going okay. It's a terrible film, but like. I'm doing an okay job, I guess, but about a week or so into it, we, uh, we have this night shoot where it was just kind of a skeleton crew, just a few of us there, and we're shooting in this old house, and there's this tiny room, and I'm sitting in the hallway while the director and the cinematographer are arguing and fighting about whatever. So I'm just sitting there waiting for this, you know, shoot to happen. And the stylist brings in Danica and sits her next to me and says goodnight, and so it's just me and Danica Winnie, my childhood love, um, sitting a couple feet from me, and I'm just kind of 
Like, I don't know what to do. And so she says, hey, how was your day? And I was like looking around. There was definitely no one else in the room. I was like, uh, it's fine. It's good. It's a good day. And then this is the point where now she's initiated conversation. And it's my turn to say something. And I'm like, I've got my internal Wonder Years dialogue. I've got nothing. So I start going through this mental Rolodex of like, how do you have a conversation with a person? And I, I, have, I, I have nothing. And so I'm just sitting there staring at her. And she's staring at me waiting for something. And I remember, it, like, it hits me that like six months before, I'm reading like, Rolling Stone or something like that, and it was like, where are they now, Danica McKellar? And she had apparently, after the Wonder Years, went and studied mathematics at UCLA and became a very successful mathematician. And so she was like a published, like she published in some kind of, I don't know what math people do, but like they got, <laughs> it was a big deal, whatever she did, that they wrote about it in Rolling Stone. And so I said, oh, you know what, I think I was just reading something about you. Didn't you do something big, like you just got published in some proof. And the look on her face was just like, thank, no one has ever asked me about math and that's all I've ever wanted to talk about. <laughs> and so she just, just brightens up. I was like, holy cow, I think I just like, <laughs> I don't know what I did, but. And so she starts talking and she says something and she gets very excited and I was like, well, what is it? And I don't know what she said after that. Like, I am, <laughs> like I've made friends with Danica McKellar, my childhood sweetheart. Like, you know, she doesn't know, she doesn't know that, but like, so she's telling me all about this math thing and it's awesome. So at the end of the night, I can go home, I can die, cause like Winnie Cooper, like I actually got in with Winnie Cooper and it was awesome. So the next day I'm sitting around with the crew guys and you know, telling them because they are my age and they also understand the significance of getting in with Winnie Cooper. And then I feel this tap on my shoulder and I turn around, and Danica is standing there. She says, hi, Eric. And I turn around, and I look back to the production guys. I'll see you later. And like, <laughs> and we, we proceed to, like, we just walk around set talking because the director and cinematographer argue, and we never shot anything. And this goes on for days. Like, and it, it, like, there's a few of our production friends in the room, or my production friends in the room, to know that like you don't necessarily get this kind of interaction with an actor. And I mean, like, she's sitting with me at lunch, and we're talking about a lot of math, and <laughs> we're talking about family and music and all this. And like, this goes on for days. And, and like even one day, I, my, my chair is next to the director and she brings over her sister, who was also a character in the Wonder Years that dated Kevin Arnold, but she brings over her sister. She's like, my sister's visiting Seth today. Do you mind if she sits with you like in between like scenes and stuff like that? It's like, she's, she's got her family screening me. Like, <laughs> and so me and her sister hit it off and it's, it could not be going better. To the point to I, I start to realize, like, I've got a shot <laughs> with Danica McKellar. Like, I've got a real shot. Like, I've seen the show. I know what it looks like when she's into a guy. Like, I know <laughs> this is happening. And not only that, like, how often do, do you have the opportunity to, I don't know, have your, your fake childhood sweetheart fall in love with you like I've got to make this happen now like it's, it's gonna happen I'm gonna make it happen for all the guys my age and so several days into hanging out 
legitimate hanging out. Like now she's hanging out with the production nerds. And now, so I've brought her into my nerdy circle. And I don't know how it came up, why I said it. I just remember what came out of my mouth in the midst of the conversation was, man, I was just, yeah, being my first film, I was so excited. Like I called my dad up after that first day. So you'll never, I was working with Winnie Cooper. And this look on her face was just disappointment. And she looked down at the ground and turned around and walked away and never spoke to me again. <laughs> it was terrible. It still is. <laughs> but the thing is, is she, she is not Winnie Cooper. She is Danica McKellar. And I, I wanted her to be Winnie Cooper. I wanted to, I wanted the, the childhood fantasy, like the girl that you compare all other girls to, you know, like I wanted to say that I actually got the girl who that was when it like that's yeah I wanted that but she wanted a friend I don't think she liked me I think she just wanted a friend that did not look at her as this thing that she did when she was a kid and now she just loves math and so I said oh I felt terrible but <laughs> if there's a takeaway to it like two years later within two years I had met the woman that I would eventually call my wife and at that point I stopped looking at, I did not look at her as what kind of mold do you fit in? How much are you like this girl or like Danica McKellar or like whoever famous or not famous or family or whatever, but who are you? And so I married her. She's the girl that I love and she's right over there. Thank you. Eric Chapman is a photographer, music producer and composer sound engineer and all-around audio guru. In fact, he helps us produce our radio show and even make sure this podcast is everything it can be. You can check him out at ericchapmanphoto.com, symmetric-sound.com, or on Instagram at chappiephoto. Now, if you have a story about how you completely and utterly blew it while on the job like Eric, we would love to hear it, especially since the theme of our next event is on-the-clock stories from the workplace, and we're still looking for some storytellers for that event. It's going to be April 23rd at the Avon Theater in Birmingham, Alabama. You can get details, purchase your tickets, and submit your story to tell all on our website, arcstories.com. Now, there are numerous books and movies that have left lasting impressions on me. And one of them that towers above the others is Big Fish. I love both the novel by Daniel Wallace and the film Tim Burton made from it. So I was beside myself when we found out Daniel was going to be in town for the production of the stage play version of Big Fish at one of our local theaters, and even more ecstatic when he accepted our invitation to come tell a story. I would obviously love to tell you that I played it completely cool with him, but I don't think so. I was I was way too nervous. I mean, it was nothing like Eric and Danica, but still, I, I couldn't think of the right thing to say to him at all. Even so, though, I loved his story and am delighted to now be able to share it with you. And I guarantee you, the lasting impression left on Daniel from his childhood is probably one of the oddest you've ever heard, which I think is totally appropriate. 
So without further ado, from an event where our theme was back to school, stories from around the classroom, here is storyteller Daniel Wallace. I had a wide-ranging and varied elementary school career here in Birmingham. I started out at Edgewood and then made a lateral move to Shays Cahaba, um, or Shades Cahaba, as we called it. <laughs> <laughs> then the summer before sixth grade, we moved again and um, I was going to attend uh, Birmingham University School. It's called BUS, it doesn't exist anymore. It was later merged with Brook Hill and it became Altamont. Uh, it was um, hugely surprising and a different experience than the schools that I'd been to before. Uh, but luckily I thought at the time, there's a boy who lived across the street from me uh, who, I'll call Frank, because that is his name. <laughs> he lived across the street, and he was going to the U.S. as, as well. And he was a godsend to me uh, because I wasn't really at my best summer before sixth grade. I, I looked like a, 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 a bent uh, wire coat hanger. Um, but Frank, Frank looked like a chipmunk. <laughs> and you know, we all go through these stages. I'm sure he doesn't look like that now. Uh, he looked like a chipmunk, and his, and his mom cut his bangs way too short, and he had this really big forehead. So up until this point, I was at the very end of the line. But now I had somebody behind me. <laughs> in the line, and you know how that feels, it just, it makes your situation seem so much better. <laughs> so, we're going to sixth grade, and we, we, we get to, um, to class, and uh, it's really weird. It, BUS used to be a, a military school, and so it still had vestiges of that, and we had to wear ties. Uh, when a, an adult walked into the room, we had to stand up. And it's hard to get used to doing that. Uh, the first time a professor came into the room, I forgot, completely forgot, I didn't stand up. And he came over to me and he said, got in my face, and he said, if you fail to stand up, the next time I come into this room, I will take you outside and hang you by your guts from the flagpole. <laughs> and Chris, it's a really great way to raise your kids too. It works, <laughs> it has worked for me. That's kind of become my philosophy of child rearing. I, I remember everything about sixth grade. In a way, I don't really remember almost any other grade I've been in. Uh, it's, due to Frank in part, but my, my homeroom teacher, uh, Mrs. Flowers, uh, she went to Randolph-Macon University. She had some sort of heart congestion, I think. Her ankles were kind of swollen, and I think that's one of the things that happens. Uh, lovely person, why would I remember this about 
Miss Flowers, lovely, lovely person. Um, so Frank and I were there in our homeroom, and uh, there was one other thing about Frank that made him different, and that was that he had a glass eye. And I had never known that was possible. Uh, and, and I don't think even Mrs. Flowers knew somehow, because two or three times a week, he would raise his hand, and Mrs. Flowers would say, Frank, yes. And Frank would say, may I go wash my eye? Because they were a little bit more primitive then, uh, but they would, it, would, it would get dirty. The sort of monkey pus would, would happen around here. Um, get all dusty like your, the phone, your phone. So, so she would say, yes, Frank, you can go wash your eye. And then he'd say, can Danny come? <laughs> and again, being new to this whole glass eye thing, Mrs. Flowers didn't know if cleaning your eye was a two-boy procedure. <laughs> so she would say, of course. Danny can, can go with you. So this is what we did two or three times a week. We'd go out of the classroom, go down the hall, into the boys' room. And um, he would go through this ritual, turn on the water in the sink. Um, he would get a paper towel from the dispenser. And then he would take his eye out of his head. <laughs> and he would put it in the palm of his hand and run the water over it, just like this, and then dry it in the paper towel and put it back in his head. <laughs> and I had nothing to do with it <laughs> at all. But I think that we can all agree about one thing. When you're cleaning your eye, you want company. It, you, you, don't want to do it, you don't want to do it alone. You don't want to be alone when you're cleaning your eye. So this is something that we did two or three times a week for sixth grade. And um, then he moved away, and I never saw him again. And I only bring it up now because for some reason, this had an impact on me uh, as a person and as a writer. Uh, when I grew up, much like I am now, I started collecting glass eyes. I went on eBay and bid ferociously. You did, you did not want to be bidding against Daniel Wallace <laughs> on eBay for a glass eye. <laughs> I pity, I pity those people out there. 
who did that. Devastated. Spirits crushed. <laughs> I, so I, I, you know, I, I kept that up for a while. I, I have about 75 <laughs> glass eyes. Um, I have one for almost everybody here, I think. Any, <laughs> anybody who, I don't know how you're doing with eyes, but every color, every size. Um, I, I started to study things about glass eyes, and this is the educational part of the program. Um, it, Egyptians were the first people to, well, they, they, they weren't glass at the time, obviously, but they made them out of clay, and they, they would drape them over the bad eye, just hang it from their head. I don't know who that fooled, <laughs> but they did it. <laughs> um, they did that. And, you know, I don't want to bore you with history, but... In the 1930s, it, uh, the glass eye industry was in Germany. They just made the best glass eyes. Um, and eventually, you may not know this, but now they're not really made of glass anymore. They're made of acrylic. So they're not, they don't break if they fall out of your head. So. <laughs> it happens all the time, by the way. So even more than that, and more importantly to me now, is, is the um, effect it had on me as a, as a writer. Because these are the things that a writer can really take advantage of, these, these things that happen to you. It's what's called material. And um, it, it, it chooses you in a way. And um, a, a, a glass eye is perfect because it's a very small thing, but it can mean so much when you think about it. I mean, sight, vision. Um, I started writing about it, and I have to say, I mean, I wasn't the first person to ever write fiction about glass eyes. There's actually a Greek myth uh, that involves one, and a Pulitzer Prize winner, Robert Owen Butler, uh, wrote a wonderful story about a woman with a glass eye. And there was this other one, uh, which is, I. I think it might be apocryphal, but it's about a man who's walking down the street in New York City, and he hears a woman scream from a balcony up above, like 10 stories, and she's reaching over the balcony. It's clear by her mannerism she's dropped something. And the sun shines, and, it, and it's glittering, and he, can, he actually can see it. He thinks it's a, an earring or something like that. He catches it. And it's a class eye. <laughs> and she runs down, she runs down to the um, street from her apartment and throws her arms around him and starts to actually make out with him right there on the street. And, and, and finally, after, of course, a few minutes, he says, no, no, no more of this. And, <laughs> and he says, do you do, you do this to, to every man? you see? And she says, no, just those who catch my eye. <laughs> so I don't, I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't think that's true. I think, I think I just used it just to tell a joke. Um, 
But my stories, uh, the first story, uh, one of my first published stories, actually, it had a, a woman in it uh, who had a glass eye. And the story I used for that, she had moved to this neighborhood, and uh, the kids were all fascinated by the eye. And she told them that they didn't know how she got it. And she told them that she had fallen in love with a prince in the desert, far country, far, far away. And of course, she was a commoner, and he was a prince, and they couldn't be together. So what they did was is they gave each other a glass eye, and she can see everything that he does through this glass eye, and he can see her life through her glass eye, and in that way, they can be together. So it was a really sweet um, story. Uh, I mean, it's, it's just a sweet way to use the glass eye. Um, then the second time I used it was in Big Fish, my first book. And in that story, there's an old woman who keeps her glass eye in a glass by the table, her, her night table, and a fraternity steals it and uses it as a prop um, for their ceremonies. And Edward Bloom, who's the hero of the book, gets the eye back for her. It turns out that this is an eye that you can see how you're going to die through. So it's a whole different kind of feeling. And, and, and in, in fact, that eye later went on to become a big movie star because it was the idea that I was used in the, the movie version of the book. So um, it had a life there, too. So I was really, for a long time, it, it was a passion of mine, but I started to get self-conscious about being the um, Where's Waldo of the glass-eye fiction writing world. And so in my next book, I didn't have a glass eye. I didn't have reason to. There was nothing in it that asked for the eye. And I turned it in and my editor said, where's the glass eye? <laughs> I said, there's not a glass eye here. And she said, there's got to be a glass eye. There's glass eyes in your work. So I put a glass eye in it. <laughs> it's really easy. <laughs> it's really, really, really very easy to, to give somebody a glass eye. Something needs to happen to the rye, you put a glass in there. So, minor character, very, very minor character. I don't really know if I am a writer because of Frank and his glass eye. I probably would be, but I think I could, it would be a much different writer than I am. It's perfect. It's like this thing T.S. Eliot calls it an objective correlative, which is a very small thing, which stands for something so much bigger. And it allows you to talk about things that you wouldn't be able to talk about otherwise. So what happened to Frank? I never saw him again, and I've tried to find him, uh, really. I've, I've expended a lot of energy trying to find him. I Googled him. I don't know if you've ever tried to do that. Uh, could not find him anywhere. I went on Facebook. 
and looked for him. He's not there. He has no social media footprint. It's as if he doesn't exist anymore. But I would really love to see him again. I'd love to meet him because I feel like now, looking back to those days when we went to the boys' room in sixth grade and he turned on the water and got the paper towel out and took the eye out of his head and put it under the water in the sink that I reached out and snatched the eye and I put it in my pocket the same way I have a glass eye in my pocket right now. And if I ever did see him again and he wanted his eye back, <laughs> I don't know that I would give it to him <laughs> because I feel like I already have. Thank you. Daniel Wallace is the J. Ross McDonald Distinguished Professor of English at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, his alma mater, where he directs the creative writing program. He is also the author of five novels, including one of my favorites, Big Fish. His latest, though, is entitled The Kings and Queens of Rome. You can learn a bit more about him at danielwallace.org. Now, before we go, I want to ask you to please subscribe to this podcast so you never miss an episode. We are working on some new ideas and ways to bring you even more great stories and storytellers, so I know you'll want to stay tuned. Also, if it's no trouble, please, please leave us a review on iTunes. I know it doesn't seem like much, but it really does make a difference. And it is just one simple way that you can support all the good storytelling we are cultivating with ARC stories. Plus, we always like to know what our audience thinks. So thanks ahead of time for doing that. And thanks for listening to the ARC Stories podcast. I've been your host, Chris Kinsley. And you can find me on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at Chris Kinsley. This podcast is produced by Taylor Robinson and myself. Francesco DeAndrea composed our theme. Special thanks to Eric Chapman from Symmetric Sound for his audio expertise, as well as to Senia Etheridge, Aaron Moon, Jake Brantley, and Nate Dreger. Don't forget to get your tickets for our next live event. They're available on our website, arcstories.com. There, of course, you can listen to other stories. You can stay up to date with all of our events, and you can even submit your own story to tell. After all, we are always asking, What's your story?